Hello and welcome to the Agora podcast. I'm Nick Malkoutsis. And I'm Phoebe Fronista. We're back for another episode in which we'll try to apply yet more intellectual rigor to all things Greek. Intellectual what now? But Phoebe, you know, I'm a modest man. Uh, they're not my words. <laughs> they're the words of our listeners. Well, oh. at least one of them. Hi, Michael, <laughs> if you're listening. Oh, thank you, Michael. Um, okay, well then, uh, the issue to which we will be applying intellectual rigor today is a painful one in many ways because we'll be talking about violence, police violence. We'll be looking at the recent social and political tension in Greece over the police's behavior. We'll try to put this in a broader context, asking what's wrong with the Greek police and how could it improve? To do that, we're going to hear from our colleague, Georgia Naku, who will explain the background to the recent friction. We'll also be speaking to two photojournalists who have been in the thick of it, literally witnessing police tactics firsthand. Lastly, we'll hear from an Oxford University professor who will explain what he thinks is ailing the Greek police and how best to address it. But we'll begin with the incident that sparked a new round of tension and conversations about heavy-handed policing. On a sunny Sunday afternoon this March, in the Nesmirni neighborhood, for our listeners who don't know Athens' geography, it's close to the center, a very old, middle-class, quiet neighborhood that's known for its very large central square, which is filled with fountains and cafes. And so the local residents gathered there that Sunday in the square for a brief escape from their months-long lockdown, which is still going on. And at some point, policemen on motorbikes arrive to enforce social distancing measures to, to check and see if they had sent their SMS for exercise, for example. But some of those present, which included parents with their young children, complained to the officers that they're being rude and aggressive, uh, even though no major offense was taking place. And so then a bystander intervenes, and he remonstrates with some of the policemen. And one of the officers responds by taking out an expandable baton and starts hitting the man across his legs repeatedly before manhandling him and throwing him to the ground. Oh, that uh, brings back some uh, nasty memories, Phoebe. Yeah, it's it's very rough. Um, he's yelling to the police, I'm in pain, assholes. Um, other people are yelling as well. 
It's obviously hurting, you know, and asking them yeah. to stop. Yeah. Um, so within minutes, footage of this incident appears on social media and it prompts an outcry from citizens, complaints from opposition parties, and in subsequent days, large public protests take place. The most violent one culminated in the serious injury of an officer. Although the reaction was partly a result of the specific incident we've just heard, there was also a sense of this being the last straw after a series of complaints about police brutality since the current centre-right new democracy government came to power in the summer of 2019. Of course, complaints about the Greek police didn't start just two years ago. It's a much longer story than that. That's why I caught up with Macropolis Features Editor Yuria Naku. We discussed what's behind this story and how Greece's decision makers have reacted to this latest flare-up. Let's hear what you talked about. Georgia. Hi, Phoebe. So the incident in Nezmirni was the trigger for the protest and all the finger pointing between politicians. But tension has been brewing for quite some time. Can you tell us the background to all this? Yes, you're right. It's been um, it's been brewing for a while, years, in fact. The latest episode in this story, I would say, started with the election of the new democracy government back in July 2019. And the reason for that is that the new democracy party had run for elections on a platform of law and order. Um, They were going to make the streets safer. They were going to crack down on antisocial behavior. So that sort of set the backdrop for this. Um, But really, um, things started to kick off with with the pandemic and the lockdowns. Now, we're not talking about massive anti-lockdown protests like we've seen in other European countries. But we are talking about several protests organised, sort of building up over a period of several weeks and debates over whether they should be allowed or not and how the police should react. You know, some of those protests were were marked by incidents with the police, particularly police getting heavy-handed with with journalists. When it really came to the fore was this incident in Nazmidni, which really came out of the blue. It also played on the evening news. People were basically outraged. And over the following days... There were marches in Nesmi to protest this incident. And two days later, it culminated with several people attacking a policeman on a motorbike, throwing him off his bike, kicking him and beating him about the head. So, you know, things very, very quickly got out of hand. And are complaints about police brutality or the force's behavior in general, is it something new or is this a long-running issue? It's a very long-running issue. 
you know, you could think back as far as 2008, you know, full-scale riots erupted after a policeman basically pulled a gun and shot a 15-year-old. But, you know, that didn't lead to any kind of wholesale reform of the police force. And every so often you have incidents, perhaps not as serious as that, but incidents like Ness Midney, heavy-handed policing of protests and so on, that every so often bring this to the forefront. And it never really seems to get resolved. You know, recently it, it emerged that um, a special committee that had been set up to look into how complaints about police violence are handled in the police force. And it turned out that the committee had produced a report and had quietly shelved it because they basically concluded that they were getting nowhere. Um, the report says that the police don't cooperate with the ombudsman when there are complaints about police behaviour. The internal investigations that are carried out seem to be quite perfunctory. So, you know, they don't follow up with key witnesses. They will often take police testimony at face value, even when it's suspicious, i.e., you know, you get a lot of um, colleagues basically giving identical reports of the incident. And um, the police evidence always is privileged over the civilian's evidence. Um, so this was all, you know, investigated and recorded and nothing happened. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, you know, this, this sort of underlines the fact that um, this is quite a, a long-running long problem. Police violence is a problem, but even more problematic in this case is police impunity. The fact that, you know, when citizens do complain about it, nothing happens. Hmm. Yeah, that kind of tracks with what um, the, the photojournalist that I spoke with say that, you know, even when they say and even when the, you know, the official union of uh, reporters or foreign press association or somebody makes a complaint and there are even photos of, egre you know, egregious behavior, the police will say, no, we didn't hit him. He fell on the baton, you know, mm -hmm. that, that, that things like that. Yeah. And, you know, in this With this latest incident, I think, you know, it may have crossed a line in the sense that, first of all, there were lots of witnesses that were not involved in any kind of protest. So there wasn't a sort of us and them. There were a lot of people from the neighborhood that were interviewed by the media and just sort of said, you know, this was, this came out of nowhere. It was completely unprovoked. And it's completely unacceptable. And the police seem to have sensed that the tide has turned against them because when police unionists were interviewed on television over the following hours and days, a lot of them said that, you know, I don't care what preceded what was felt, what was caught on camera. It doesn't really matter. The police shouldn't be hitting citizens like that. You know, someone even said that the baton that was being used actually was not a regulation baton or it had been phased out because it was too dangerous and just said, you know, these people are giving the police a, a bad name. So although, you know, previously there'd been this narrative that there's a few rotten apples giving the police a bad name, now the police's own unions are saying this. You know, there were surveys done of the general public in light of these incidents and, you know, the outcry was 
pretty generalized, you know, large sections of people across the political spectrum were saying that, you know, the use of force is excessive, that the Greek police uh, performs worse than other European police forces on this front. Something like two thirds of people who were asked, um, you know, whether they trust police procedures to, um, you know, punish policemen who engage in excessive force, whether they trust those procedures to work. About two thirds said, no, we don't trust them to work. Even after the policeman was put in hospital uh, by the attack, about half the people who were asked said that was the police's fault for behaving unprofessionally, failing to de-escalate. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, the fact that it it happened very much in an unexpected context and drew people into it who don't normally engage in this adversarial law and order debate, I think, I think put the government and the police on the back foot. And what has been the opposition stance? Is there, is there a sense that it's trying to exploit the situation, as the government argues? The opposition, you know, I don't think it's true that the opposition are, are rallying people out onto the streets with the intent of causing trouble and, um, you know, getting attacked by the police. But they certainly haven't been um, trying to deter people from coming out on the streets. Um, there was a very unfortunate quote by the Syriza leader, Alexis Tsipras, who, when he was asked in a TV interview whether he accepted the risk of coronavirus outbreaks from demonstrations, said he accepted there was a risk. Mm-hmm. Didn't then say, didn't, didn't send a clear message. They, they sort of seemed to... Um, by implication, at least, support these demonstrations. They also didn't do anything to discourage demonstrations uh, in support of um, Dimitris Kufodinas, who was a convicted terrorist on hunger strike, mm-hmm. uh, that brought people out on the streets, eventually in their hundreds, pretty much on a daily basis in Athens. I would say, you know, their position has possibly lacked responsibility that goes with their their role. So as soon as Dimitris Kufodina stopped his hunger strike, um, those protests stopped. And and for a while, I think even anti-COVID restrictions uh, protests have stopped too. I don't think it's a maybe spring, but do you think this issue is likely to, to die down or are there potential flashpoints ahead? For example, there was that controversial law that they passed where there will be, when universities open again, um, there will be police inside them? Uh, No, I mean, it's certainly not going to die down. And the main reason is that there hasn't been a a conclusive move by the government or the, the leadership of the police to, you know, really resolve the issue. They've, they've made some small concessions, you know, in the sense that, Police will have to carry identifying, clearly visible identifying badges so that when a complaint is made, they can actually give someone's badge number. Um, they've said police will bear body cameras and we kind of know that body cameras don't really solve the problem because they've been used by police forces elsewhere that have had ongoing issues with police violence. There hasn't really been a full apology for what's happened. And certainly the the issue with universities is going to raise its ugly head at some point because 
it hasn't really been implemented yet. This law was voted in during lockdown. University students are still being taught, taking classes remotely. So campuses aren't being fully used. So I can perfectly well imagine that, um, you know, come September or whenever the universities return to their, their full schedule and the students show up and suddenly there are guards on campus, that that's not going to play out well unless, you know, something is done to manage that transition. And, I, you know, I don't see any discussion of that on the part of the government. You know, now they say these won't be proper police, that they're not going to be armed, that they're not going to be um, kitted out like police. Um, but really the whole, that whole topic is, is really confrontational and, you know, nothing seems to be done to diffuse it. So we don't know what's going what's gonna to happen then. And, and the lockdown front right, and the coronavirus restrictions, the whole Nasmini incident seems to have really created an odd dynamic because to the extent that restrictions were being policed, um, it was pretty light touch. And now the police unions say that no way are they going to go and tell people to stop partying in the squares uh, after what happened to their colleague, <laughs> hmm. so they, they they don't think that they, they, there's a way of a way of telling people to disperse without being violent. Apparently not. I mean, the way they put it is that the, that the violence is going to be on them. But obviously, um, you know, th- this would have been potentially a good point for the police to take on a different role. Now, this is going back several months. Now, it's I think it's a bit too late for this now. But going back to the beginning, you know, they could have been there in an advisory role. They could have been soft policing. They could have been, you know, handling things more sensitively so that it doesn't come to arresting and fining people, that they can disperse a crowd without creating a massive riot. You know, that didn't happen. Now there's a standoff. You know, I can tell you in the neighbourhood where I live, is close to one of the big sort of party hotspots that's developed during the, the lockdown. And there is absolute impunity on the part of the people that show up and party until 3.30 in the morning when everyone else has been locked up since 9pm. There is absolutely, there's not a blue flashing light to be seen 100 yards from the police station. So, you know, we haven't had trouble on that front yet, but again, I can see it see it happening when when it gets to to the point of no return. Well, thank you, Georgia. Sorry, that wasn't a very optimistic take on things, but I think you know there has to be some give somewhere in order for this to work, and I think really the responsibility of the authorities and the police to figure out how to de-escalate this. That was Macropolis Features Editor Georgia Naku speaking to Phoebe about the background to the recent unrest over police brutality, as well as what the future might hold. 
So now we move from Yuria's measured analysis to the heart of the action, where things can get out of hand pretty fast. I met up with two photojournalists working here in Greece, Nikos Paleologos and Luisa Guliamaiki. Nikos works for the local agency Souk, spelled S-O-O-C, straight out of camera, while Luisa has been with France's AFP agency for many years, and they both have vast experience of covering tense and difficult incidents in Greece, including many public protests. Uh, Luisa has also covered wars and conflict in other countries, so she brings really great perspective to this discussion. And both of them a great deal of uh, courage and professionalism, I would add. Absolutely. Let's hear what Nikos and Luisa have to say. I caught up with Nikos outside, near a stadium, as he was experimenting with his new drone. That's the buzzing sound. And he says, police violence, it's nothing new. As I remember, I've been injured by police officers and uh, riot police, one too many, especially back in 2010-2011. We've been through this, it's, not, it's nothing new, but uh, on the past month and the past two months, uh, there has been um, a rise of uh, police brutality against uh, photojournalists. Uh, we are almost targeted. Back in March, in the, in the beginning of March, uh, there was a group of uh, riot police uh, whom they, they attacked a group of photojournalists on purpose. This is on camera, this is on photos. In that 15-second video from March 6th, we see a protester sitting on the ground, being detained by police. He's in fact the son of Dimitris Kufodinas, whose 65-day hunger strike over which prison he would be transferred to serve the remainder of his multiple life sentences sparked months of demonstrations. So it's newsworthy, it's his son, and photojournalists are taking pictures. As a handful of bystanders are shouting for him to be let go, the police are trying to shoo away both the bystanders but also the media. And you can hear them telling police, we're just doing our job. And then a police officer turns around and pushes a photographer to the ground. The loud noise you hear towards the end come from the sound of his body falling onto a parked motorbike, which also falls to the pavement. We are at the wrong place, the wrong... That's what they are saying, right? Uh, we, are, we, we were at the wrong, wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, you got this because uh, you were shouting. You got this because you were between us and the rioters. Uh, you got this because um, we wanted to clear, clear the area be, which, where we were operating. These are what the officers say. But for street reporters, these excuses don't hold water especially when often there's photographic evidence to the contrary. Most of us have been trained to cover uh, civil unrest or even wars. We, we know how to do it. We know where to stand. We are protecting ourselves and the others next to us. And um, whenever we see that something is going to get uh, ugly, uh, we try to take our own steps back, forward or wherever. Whenever we get hit, we get hit by riot police, which seems 
that this is targeted. We are moving in ways that we cannot get, get beaten up by either the protesters or the police. So whenever we get hit, we know that this is on purpose. We are being uh, targeted and attacked. And uh, I remember an incident in Capodistrio Street. There was um, a protest against uh, the foreclosures. A, a group of riot police is guarding the front door of, uh, of, of the place that the people wanted to, to protest out of. And uh, all of a sudden there is some pushing and, uh, and something, something is going to burst. <laughs> we, we do our best, we go back and all of a sudden... I see on the, on my right side a policeman with his baton beating me and hitting me with uh, uh, with his shield. Um, the video that all the colleagues that were around me at this point were were shooting video, and uh, this is all on tape. And the police denied everything. They said, "No, no, no, he beat them. The the, the journalist beat them." When Louisa got her front teeth broken via a riot police officer's shield back in 2011, she didn't report it. Not even when another officer punched her in the face a year later. There was not some violence going on. There were no clashes, actually. It was without real reason. The only thing happening was some arrests, which were even not very violent. Uh, I was as well hit by... Um, a shield of policemen and they broke me the front teeth oh. which I didn't report I was actually very shocked because I didn't un understood why <laughs> it happened uh, I didn't report it uh, I just you know had my agency you know helping me recovering with that etc okay. oh, I didn't know about uh, yeah. that um, so yeah uh, there was violence towards the media at the time. And, I, of course, you know, I never report uh, violence when I am covering riots and I am between the protesters and the police. Because that's logic that if you're too close, you can get hit either by the police or either by the protesters, even if they don't really intend to do it. Uh, but in this case, it was just, you know... Uh, it was no reason for that. I was not pushy. I was not talking badly. Nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, similar was again during arrests on Stadio Square during 2012 demonstrations. Again, uh, because of the economic crisis in Greece at the time, uh, a, a policeman punched me in the face. Nothing happened. But uh, it wasn't, you know, really... Why? I mean, because I'm a woman, I mean, is it easier to target us or... You know, no reason, really. Again, I'm not a pushy person. I'm usually not talking, not shouting. During the coronavirus pandemic, to protect public health, large gatherings of all kinds were banned. But because the right to protest is protected by Greece's constitution, demonstrations, some more socially distanced than others continue to take place, even as the government attempted to restrict both the protesters and the media's movements. The Minister of um, Civil Protection, he did this new directive and it's actually, it was kind of targeting media on the way that they said that media will cover the demonstrations from a designated area 
which was crazy when I heard it. I was actually on a demonstration and I read that news on my mobile when I was just, you know, cowering. I mean, it was very quiet demonstration by students. And I was like, what? <laughs> so I said to my colleagues, guys, did you read it? Did you see it? No, are you joking? What is this? You know, where did you find it from? You know, I mean, I'm not possible. And uh, yeah, so of course there were immediate, immediate, immediate um, complaints by the unions of Greek photo journalists, Greek uh, Greek journalist union, and the foreign association against that. And they said, no, 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 it's only for your protection. We will not intervene. Of course, you have to do your job. But actually, it's, it's, it doesn't happen really always uh, because we were targeted, stopped and kind of abused by police during the recent demonstrations. Which were some, which were not that huge demonstrations considering Greece's history of demonstrations. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think it has more to do that police has the idea that we are on the side of the demonstrators. Mm. I, it might be. One of the reasons they, they stopped us, I was walking away going to take my motorbike <laughs> to go to file photos. And they stopped us, uh, made a blockade, and when we said, hey, what are you doing? I mean, we have to pass. They threw a bit of tear gas towards us, pushed us. Police didn't want any of these demonstrations to happen. They were uh, trying to um, disperse protesters as soon as a few of them gathered. But that day they managed to um, unfurl a banner and, you know, to say a few words. And we covered that. Uh, they throw tear gas into the um, metro station. Um, I don't, I'm, I can't uh, confirm if somebody was injured, but it was really a very tense and strange situation. And the professors by as well got tear, uh, tear gas. There are dozens of videos like this one from December 2020 where police forcibly push back a group of reporters, even as they identify themselves as members of the press. In another video, from this February, police even tear gas the reporters. That sound? That's a tear gas gun. I think that as more um, they think they have, uh, authority they have, as more they will become violent and they will impose this authority to anybody, which are as well media, because we sometimes bother them or we cower something that they don't want to be covered. In Nazmirny, because you asked me about Nazmirny, after the violence against the people just sitting in the park, there were clashes. And then when the motorized police, Delta, arrived, they start shouting on us, what are we doing here that we have to go away? Is it funny? Is it... And I try to be very politely and 
I just said that, you know, um, uh, it's important to uh, make photos and videos of that, what happens, you know, isn't it? And he shouted to me that it's all our fault because we shoot all these videos and photos and publish in social media and that's why it happens and they beat them. Uh. So I was like, eh? I would tell him that, sorry, it's not our fault that you beat innocent people on the squares who are just there and they gather uh, because of, let's say, the measures of the coronavirus, because it's it's a joke. It, I mean, it's not it's not the work of policemen to beat people on the square. Uh, so they were very nasty with the other media, and they they were very nasty to any people who were on the streets, even had nothing to do with, of course, beating of the policemen or even with the demonstration itself. It was a real hunt on people in all Nazmirni all evening after the demos and after what happened. I don't know. Um, I, I can't say that it's maybe, you know, it's, it's a full escalating now, but with all this, with people being really angry and, uh, and tired because of the COVID measures and restrictions, with a lot of police, new police being hired, with uh, the new law which uh, installs actually uh, police, special police units, no weapons, uh, no riot police of course, but special police unit in universities. It makes people really see that, feel that they are under constant surveillance. For Nikos, the biggest and most long-running issue concerning police violence is the impunity. Like, why do you think this, this, this happens? And who gives them that kind of power? Uh, when it comes from um, above, from the officers, let's say, from the higher ranks, they always say, we never gave, we never gave this order to this policeman. Uh, th- there's going to be an investigation on the incident. It never happens. <laughs> uh, there are some incidents back in 2006 where a, police, uh, where, where a photojournalist from uh, the European agency has been beaten up uh, during a student's protest, still the trial hasn't happened. 2006 until 2021, nothing happened. Uh, fortunately, and unfortunately at the same time, there has only been one or two incidents where colleagues have been, have been uh, seriously injured. Uh, one of them was the president of... Uh, uh, the photojournalist union. The photojournalist union, yeah. Uh, and uh, still, this policeman who attacked Marius Lolos uh, hasn't been on trial, but he went to another uh, uh, department of the police. Or that's what they said. We've never seen him again on the streets, but I think he's somewhere else in some other city or something. Um, my yeah. opinion as Nick <laughs> and as a photojournalist partly... Uh, is that whenever someone needs to hide something, whenever something ugly happens, uh, he, she who does this ugly action, needs to cover the eyes of the people watching the the event. Um, Unfortunately, we are the eyes uh, on these occasions. Uh, I don't want to go back home uh, getting beaten up again. I've been there. 
I'm I'm 37. I've been working for 17 years now, and uh, it was ugly seeing my mother crying whenever I, I came back home, uh, covered in blood or with broken fingers. Okay, these are the, the rules of the trade. I, I am a photojournalist. I know I'm putting myself in danger, and uh, but but now I'm 37. I, I have a kid. I have a house, and I don't I don't want to go back. And on the greatest of. Uh, of the occasions I'm going to be just injured uh, I, I don't want to get beaten up in the head and get crippled or worse and uh, what we do is uh, protect each other right now uh, we talk with our colleagues whenever we go to cover a protest or uh, a riot uh, and we work in teams someone needs to protect the other and um, Literally, uh, I've been in some protests lately, I didn't shoot pictures. I was waiting for the others to shoot, and then the others were coming back, waiting for me to shoot, in order to have footage of us being attacked. And what do you think, what do you think needs to change, or who do you think needs to change it? We need the um, clarity. I think that's that's the word. We need the whenever we say that we're getting attacked, we need someone to say, "Oh, give us the footage." They see the footage. Okay, we'll investigate. And the next day, guys, we've seen the footage. That guy is that guy with that number. He works for this uh, department of the police uh, uh, force, and uh, you've been attacked by him, or you've been doing your work. You haven't been doing your work properly and uh, you got injured because of that. We need someone to be honest with us. Luisa Uliamaiki and Nikos Paleologos, two Greek photojournalists speaking to Phoebe about their experiences with the Greek police and how they view things from street level. Also reminding us that you don't necessarily need to be in a war zone to be putting yourself in harm's way while doing your job as a journalist. What Nikos and Luisa told you seems to underline the feeling that many Greeks have, Phoebe, which is that the country's police force is too often aggressive, overzealous, unprofessional, even vindictive, uh, some people say. It's not a great look. It's not. But can anything be done about it? That's going to be the issue at the heart of the next part of our discussion. So who have you been talking to? Okay, I had a chat with Pavlos Eleftheriadis. He's a professor of public law at Oxford University in the UK. He's written op-eds about the Greek police in the local media. So it's a subject that he's looked at and has interesting views on. But he's also dabbled in the Greek political scene. He was a founding member of the centrist party Topotami, standing as a candidate with them in the 2015 elections. He left the party in 2017 and then stood as a candidate in the European Parliament elections of 2019 with New Democracy, the current ruling Conservative Party in Greece. So he's aware of the political complexities that surround this issue. Absolutely. He's learned the hard way 
Greek politics is a difficult business, and uh, that's why I think he also brings an interesting perspective to this discussion. Let's hear what you guys talked about. Pavlos, if we look at the figures for the number of police officers that Greece has, uh, it's astonishingly high. According to Eurostat, it's the second highest ratio in the EU and almost 50% above the European average. And, and to give our listeners an idea, we're talking about almost 500 police officers per 100,000 inhabitants, which is you know a bit of a mind-blowing number. Why does Greece need so many police officers? Well, um, I'm not sure it does uh, need them. Uh, the fact it has them doesn't mean it needs them. Um, I, I think it's it's a bigger picture here that, as you know, the public sector has been bloated for reasons that have to do with political expediency, not policy. Uh, so I think this is just an aspect of this phenomenon that uh, the, the, there were just very many... Um, public appointments for clientelistic reasons, so that these are favours that people are appointed. Although I must say this is probably not true for the more senior officers, because now they have to go through the national exams, you know, the university exam. Um, uh, so that has improved very much the quality of the officers, the younger officers. That, mm -hmm. So there are two ways of entering the police. Uh, but the second way, which is ad hoc appointments, has been happening you know, frequently. And, and uh, yeah, so I, I don't see any reason for that. Crime is not particularly high in Greece. The general, especially violent crime, is not high at all, uh, if you look at the stats. So, so yeah, I think for me, it's part of the bigger picture of a clientelistic network that really, really likes uh, public sector appointments. W would you say that then that explains why... Uh, one of the first things that the current government did when it came to power in 2009 was to announce the hiring of 1,500 more uh, motorcycle riding uh, policemen. Of course, since then, it's announced the creation of the campus police force, which maybe we'll talk about a bit more in a minute. Uh, it plans to launch a new transport police force. Uh, Given the high number of police we already have, is this justifiable? And does it worry you any in any way beyond the sort of continuing of the possible clientelistic practices? Well, it doesn't really worry me. I don't think it's part of a pattern for the development of a police state or anything like that. Uh, but I think it does show that the government made a conscious choice to uh, rely on a law and order political strategy. So it is a I mean, what worries me is that the government does too much of that communication-oriented uh, uh, decisions, takes decisions that are short-term, short-term political gains. So the law and order uh, narrative is very, very strong in the government. In some respects, understandably so, because I think the previous government, the populist government of Syriza, um, exhibited, you know, recklessness in the in, the, in that area. Uh, so the, the, I think it's our political decision not part of a, a larger sort of plan or a particular strategy. Uh, because, of course, that's one, one, one of the th things that uh, critics point to is that, you know, this is uh, all signs of this creation of a police state, as you mentioned, of a sort of uh, despotic uh, nature yeah. in, in, I think uh, the, in the Greek political class. But The opposition is, is 
is trying to compare the government of Mitsotakis uh, to Orban and the Polish Conservatives, and that's totally unfair and irresponsible, actually. Um, uh, it, what the government is doing, I mean, this is a centre-right government. It's, it's, it, it does have a, a more or less liberal agenda, um, but it's a, it's a right-wing party. And uh, as, I, as I got to know that party quite well in recent years, um, it, it does have a hardcore identity narrative. So the New Democracy Party relies on certain traditional values. That, and, and, and the Prime Minister and his uh, advisors are not really part of that world. So I think he's going out of his way to placate the right wing, nationalist wing of his party. In my view, he's doing it too much. There's a conscious decision to give to the right wing that identity issues, the um, the, ideo the ideological war, so to speak, uh, to cover that flag so that they can actually uh, carry on with the liberal economic and tax uh, and pension reforms that for the government are the real priority. I think that's, theirs, um, that's the decision they've made. One of the developments that I just mentioned, which is the... Uh, policing of universities has obviously triggered a lot of disagreement mm -hmm. in, in Greece, something that you as an academic, I'm sure you're very much aware of. Um, and, you know, in the discussion before we started, I said that we could probably devote a whole podcast yeah. to this issue alone. And we don't want to go too much into detail on it, but it would be interesting to know where you stand on the issue. The, the, the government is... Um, going against the grain in many ways by saying that it's going to introduce a police force for universities, but it's not going to be a campus police. It's going to be under the auspices of the regular police. Well, there are two conflicting policy objectives here. The first one, to which I'm very sympathetic, is to protect free speech in the universities and to protect a, 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 an environment conducive to education and research. And for the last, I don't know, 20 years, uh, the universities in Athens, because the problem is not the same uh, in the universities in the periphery, but the, uh, the universities based in Athens have experienced extremely high levels of violence and intimidation, mostly by left-wing groups. And um, that is terrible for morale, terrible for free speech, terrible for research, terrible for working conditions. So ha something has to be done. And every other measure in the past has failed. So... To have a campus police may be a way forward. It wouldn't have been my first choice, I must say, because it goes against the second policy objective. The second policy objective is to um, not, not to provide sort of heavy-handed tactics and heavy-handed policing. We don't need heavy-handed policing in, in, in the universities. And you need to um, create an atmosphere of freedom and, and um, radical freedom, perhaps, at universities. So... So I understand the worry that um, the, the police is going to get it wrong. But on this point, I must say I'm with the government. I think something has to be done. The danger to the university teachers, uh, you know, the vandalisms, the, the constant menacing uh, atmosphere of the Athenian universities is, is terrible and is ruining the prospects of generations of students who go and study there. What do you say to the argument that some people have that, you know, certain extreme incidents happen from time to time and that these are blown out of uh, proportion and, you know, the, the, the 
the violence, the intimidation is actually not as bad as uh, is sometimes made out. Well, I think it's very bad. Mm-hmm. I, be- <laughs> I read the the stories of prominent and less prominent academics, and if you read, you know, ten public events, there are probably two hundred other public events. Mm. I mean, I remember a, a, a close friend of mine who was there for a disability rights event. Um, he was representing um, a group of um, patients who have a, a chronic disease, and because the the, the event was um, uh, funded by from some pharmaceutical company, I forget exactly. The, it was a private sector. Right. These left wing groups uh, attacked him personally. Mm-hmm. In an op-ed you wrote for Tovima Weekly last month, you reference the regular reports issued by the Council of Europe's Anti-Torture Committee, which indicate a lack of willingness by Greek authorities to address concerns about the treatment of people being held in custody in Greece. What do you think is the cause of this reluctance to improve behaviour and conditions? Well, I don't know. Uh, I uh, looked at, for that article, I mean, I wanted to understand the nature of this problem. So I looked back and I went to the website of the Committee on the Prevention of Torture. And that, that is a, an objective international body under the Council of Europe, makes regular visits uh, to, to all the member states of the Council of Europe, including Greece, every few years, and issues a report. And you can see basically the, the history of this phenomenon. And, and I looked at 2019, and that was a visit that covered the series of years. Um, and it said there's a terrible problem with prisons, with incredible levels of violence inside the prisons, and levels, unacceptable levels of police brutality in various instances reported to them. And they said it's very frustrating that the Greek government doesn't recognize that there is a problem. And that's quite striking. Um, uh, and I looked back to 2016. These reports uh, take place every three years. And they said exactly the same thing, 2016. And then I went back uh, and there was an equivalent statements going back. And in 2011, they said, for the last 20 years, we've been coming here and there is these levels of brutality. Nothing's happening. Uh, so it, it is a systemic problem. Um, and that's why it, it got me thinking. And what I wrote in my article for Tovima was that Clearly, it's not a, a recent decision or anything like that, but it, I think it's part of the general levels of lack of trust in the police. So the police sees itself as an embattled group of professionals, of, of, a, of a professional group, uh, and they do not accept external control. They don't want to accept any institutions of accountability. And that's a, a common phenomenon everywhere in the public sector. And again, I don't know exactly how it happened, but I think it's part of a very uh, much broader phenomenon where the civil servants work for themselves. They have, you know, their political scientists have talked about this in many other contexts, how they've captured their organizations and they work for their own interests. So I think that's happened in the police. And so they don't accept uh, external accountability. They close ranks. Uh, They don't like... um, uh, to have to see any of their members being prosecuted, so they don't tell the truth to the investigators, and so on and so on and so forth. So, so for me, that's the biggest problem, and it's a b- much broader problem in the in the, in the uh, general civil service, including in the judiciary, <laughs> including in the, you know yeah so many other fo- areas. 
yeah, this leads to the next question, which is that we, we focus a lot on the, the police and what they're doing and lack of accountability and transparency and so on. But in your view, how much of a responsibility lies with the judicial system in allowing police officers yeah. to cross the line? Well, huge. I think I've written this in some other articles that the judiciary is, I think, the worst uh, institution uh, of our constitutional balance. If you look at the separation of powers, uh, judiciary, uh, executive and legislature, I think the judiciary is the one that's failing the most. Um, because trust comes from the top. You have to inspire it uh, with decisive uh, actions and decisions from, from the top down. And the judiciary has failed to do that. It has some very poor leaders, um, but they themselves do not accept ac accountability. Uh, they don't have any process of evaluation internally. Their promotions, promotions to senior levels of the judiciary, happen almost always on the basis of uh, years of service. So it's a sort of cab rank rule of promotions. Uh, so, uh, I mean, it, it, I don't say, I mean, it's not me saying that, it's judges themselves saying that in various reports that uh, have been published recently, one from the analysis very recently, uh, that's been happening periodically. And and then the, and the judiciary should be more alert to these cases of extreme violence by the police. Remember though, however, that, that, that it, it starts with an administrative uh, investigation first, what we call a there, uh, so uh, an investigation under us. So an investigation. Yeah, yeah, so if that doesn't work, if you don't collect the evidence, uh, and then you're supposed, you're supposed to give it to the judges, to the, the prosecutors, if that doesn't work, then you can see how the judges cannot really uh, uh, get involved. Um, the, the problem of police brutality is very well known. So the, the, the Syriza government started a um, non-judicial process of investigation under the uh, Greek Ombudsman. Uh, that happened in 2016. Uh, but that hasn't worked very well. And that's what the uh, government of the current government um, launched this internal investigation under the Alevisatos Committee uh, back in 2019, in November. And they said, there's a committee of police officers, academics, lawyers, Let's find out what happened. What's happening with police brutality? And then uh, they investigated very, very quickly, and they reported within six months. And they said the police police officers do not support these processes. They don't give the evidence. Um, uh, they're very, very slow. They they close ranks. So the system, the informal system of administrative review from outside, is not working very well. And they made several proposals for beefing it up, for strengthening it, strengthening it, uh, this process, the informal process. But you see, it's very, very important. If you're going to have an investigation, it has to be from people outside the body that is being investigated and also a body that is trusted by those investigated. Um, in Britain, we have numerous such bodies that are independent from government uh, and they're seen to be independent from government. And there is a, a great degree of trust in those institutions. Unfortunately, in, in, in Greece, we have great um, distrust for independent bodies of that kind. Even the current government, the Deputy Prime Minister, I noticed it very clearly. He said, uh, I think, in my view, we have too many independent bodies. We have to, uh, mm -hmm. have to reduce them. Anexartes de kitikes arches is the terminology. I think that's a big mistake. Yeah. We don't have enough. Uh, we need to have uh, independent bodies and, and good bodies, and co good quality bodies. And the Greek Ombudsman is one of them. It's a very successful one. It's been around for more than 20 years. It's, it has a, a very good track record. It is widely trusted. 
but it needs more powers. So I think uh, the government reacted very slowly. So if you if you want to give you a little bit of a the narrative of what happened is that the Elizabeth Committee reported in May, um, the government did nothing in May, May 2020. And suddenly, recently, a few weeks ago, they said, okay, we will implement everything that uh, the Elizabeth Committee wants in response to, in, to events. And the meeting uh, that Kiriakos Mitsotakis, the prime minister, had with Professor Elizabeth, you, you know what? That's not the way. <laughs> That's not, this is not a, the way to make policy, basically, in reaction to Canada. You need to have a long-term strategy. And clearly, the government did not have a, a, a long-term strategy about the police. Um, and incidentally, I mean, I, I, I looked at the, um, in December, they published their 2021 government plan. And each ministry has its own plans. And I looked at what the Ministry for um, uh, Citizens Protection proposed that there was nothing there about the accountability of the police. Uh, mm. Suddenly in March, they published the, the white book, Levki Biblos, of reforms, yep. where they include everything that Elizabeth says in, well, 15 pages. So it wasn't very thorough. So again, it doesn't, it doesn't, they haven't really planned, they haven't really thought through these issues. They react to events. Uh, so it may be that they do want to do the right thing after all, but I think the, the responsibility lies with the government and the minister, especially, that didn't have a strategy about these problems that are very, very well known and long-standing problems, and they need serious reform, uh, reform in institutions, reform in mentality. Uh, they need political support from various bodies, from the from the from political forces. They need consensus. They need deliberation, and these things haven't happened. I'm afraid. Linking all these issues together, uh, Pavlos, the um, the, the Visatos Committee, which you mentioned, an independent committee to look at what's wrong with the police, how can we can fix it? And as you mentioned, its findings largely ignored until all hell break, broke yes. loose yeah. on the streets of Athens, uh, if I, you can excuse that phrase. Um, linking that to what you said earlier about and what you've written in your pieces as well that uh, your your feeling is that the unruly behavior of officers is not symptomatic of a effort to foster a police state as mm. some people argue uh, more a byproduct of the laxity and unprofessionalism and clientelism that resides in other state state bodies and parts of the public administration um taking all the, that into account, do you sense though that perhaps there is also a problem, a political problem within the Greek police in the sense of a, a far right issue, a culture of hate, be it in the form of racism or antipathy for other political ideologies? For instance, let's go after the anarchists or let's go after the far left or whatever it may be because we don't like them. Well, I, I'm convinced that there is a problem. I mean, that, that's not unique mm -hmm. to the Greek police. You see it in American police, for example, uh, with you know racist groups and so on and so forth, sympathy mm -hmm. for them and so on. So it, it's not to be, uh, it's not surprising. And I think political scientists have been, done research on this on the Golden Dawn and so on, and they have shown there are there is a great deal of link. So I, it would worry me very very much. Um, um, but the bigger picture is um, again is how how to hold them to account how how to 
uh, inspire uh, some kind of internal self-discipline to all police and tell them, look, you need to be uh, careful what you do to people. I mean, I spoke when I was first candidate with Potami back in 2014. We have a very good, important meeting with refugees. We met with the Refugee Council. We wanted to understand what happened, what's happening in the center of Athens. And the one thing yeah. they told us beyond any doubt was the racism of the police and the brutality of the police. I said, I, I said, you really, I said, do you really believe that they are racist and they beat you up and they support you? He said, absolutely. It's totally obvious mm. to us. It's been for, for years. So obviously you need to find the people who are responsible for violent episodes and punish them, but also to inspire a culture of uh, openness and equality and respect. And that hopefully will happen now with the new educational initiatives to educate. Uh, but it's not just that you have to punish us. I believe in punishment. I, I believe in showing your uh, disapproval actively. So if somebody is breaking the rules in a very serious way, you have to sack them. Right. So in that, I think that's not happening in the Greek police. The worst cases need to be held accountable. But again, I said it, and I, I do believe that social trust comes from above. It has to be inspired from the top. And I don't think the government really understands the significance of this. I'll give you one example. A, a few months ago, the government passed an amnesty for local authorities. I think it was maybe six or seven months ago. So that anyone who's accused of embezzlement or mismanagement was retrospectively uh, let off. Um, this was an initiative of the then Minister uh, of the Interior uh, under a proposal by the former mayor of Athens. I don't know if you remember those, uh, this episode. I, I think it was a shocking yeah. event because it basically yeah. created a culture of impunity from a sector of the political world. And you might think, well, so what? It's not a big deal. I think it's a very big deal because it, it sends totally the wrong signal that the political class is looking after its own. And there, there is, a, I think there's a real problem, especially among the young, uh, of alienation from the political class. And there's a, uh, there's a view which is very unfair, I think, but it, it is out there that the politicians and the government is just a bunch of rich kids from Athens College, who are having a great, having a, a whale of a time, having a great fun running the country, right? I think there is an element of truth there, but because of who the people in government are, but that's very, very unfair because the government, at least the core of the government, are very dedicated, hardworking people who worked all of their lives, and that I think you know they're trying to do the right thing. And but the the symbolism is really matters very, very much. The government tried to do something about the accountability of its own government. And this, it started really well in the beginning of the, the very first thing they legislated was the law for the state, epitelicocratos, executive state. I don't know how to translate it. Yes. But anyway, yeah, I think that's the they way, introduced yeah. some rules about, conf for the first time, a code of conduct for conflict of interest for ministers and the deputies and so on and general secretaries. And that was a very good thing. But it was a job half done. And they made mm -hmm. two mistakes, in my view. The first one was that they made those rules of, of the code of conduct mandatory in a law. This is part of the law, Article 68 to 74 or something. Now, if you have something in a law, in a statute, it, it, it becomes the responsibility of the courts. The courts will never go into issues of ethics for ministers. They shouldn't. It was a big, it was a mistake to put it in a kind of law. 
in every uh, part of the world that I know, this is these codes of conduct are policy documents, soft law, so to speak, but they have to be monitored by an independent body. So in, in Britain, for example, there is this um, independent parliamentary standards authority. Uh, and even within them, there is the compliance officer who is himself separate from IPSA, from the Independent Parliamentary Standards Authority. And th there is there are ways of organizing accountability uh, outside the courts. If you put five articles in an act of parliament, you're not going to create that. And, and the act then said there should be a committee, a, a, a committee, um, an ethics committee, which will be outside parliament, it will be part of Ethniki Archiviafanias, the new transparency authority. But as far as I know, a year and a half later, this committee hasn't been set up. We don't know anything about this committee. Uh, and more importantly, the government hasn't really supported these reforms. These are important reforms. Did you know about them, Nick? I mean, I had to search for them. I had carefully to look for them in the body of the yeah, act. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes. So the priorities of this government, I think they're all wrong. I mean, they're saying economic reforms, tax reform, pension reform. Great. Of mm -hmm. course, we need those things. We need investment. Mm -hmm. We need to encourage technological innovation and so on. But we also need to look at institutions. We need to look at a culture of accountability. We need to change the atmosphere of politics. We cannot carry on. Uh, the way we've been, you know, doing for for, for, for for years, and the old politics was briefly suspended. We let us not forget that because of the uh, uh, memoranda, right, and the troika. Mm -hmm. Troika came here, and politics was replaced by the troika enforcement mechanisms. Now again, politics is suspended because of COVID, and it's very, very unfortunate because this was an opportunity, and I think the right people were in, in power. So. I think Yara Petritis, who's, I must say, you know, full disclosure, is a personal friend of mine and he's an Oxford, you know, yeah. law graduate and so on. The Minister of State. He's a minister. Yeah. So I think he's, he's, he wants to do the right things, but he cannot do those things alone. Uh, he needs the whole government and the prime minister and the ministers themselves to take these rules seriously, the conflict of interest. Who can lobby a minister? Do we know who's allowed to lobby? Um, mm -hmm. What is conflict of interest? What is an interest? Is it only financial? Of course not. What ministers care most about is their re-election. So the most valuable asset for them is uh, media exposure, if, as in most cases, they are candidates in the large constituencies of Athens. So they need media exposure. So when can a minister meet media people, like various people who go and visit their ministries every now and again? Is that allowed? Should it be allowed? So these are very important issues, ethical issues, but also issues of trust. The public needs to be reassured that the government is only looking to serve the public interest and not their own private interests. And it's not enough that the people are dedicated. They must be seen to be dedicated. They must be seen not to have any conflict of interest in the decision-making process. Yeah. So the, these institutions of trust, we haven't, this government, has done some reforms in, in, in bringing them about, but is not investing political capital in them. And at the moment, I think they're failing. They're basically, we don't have that committee, for example, the ethics committee for, for cabinet ministers. It doesn't exist. Accountability is not part of the public debate. We don't talk about it.
Yeah, so I, I really think there, there needs to be a shift in the strategy. And the police, the problems of accountability of the police, or the accountability of the judges, or the accountability of the teachers, or university teachers, you know, the, these are part of the same debate. We need public trust in our institutions. And I, I, time is running out, I'm afraid. We've already, you know, this government's been in place for two years. And uh, I mean, obviously, COVID is an issue, but I think they ought to take action. And it's good they reacted when it came to the police, but I think the problem is much, much larger. Pavlos, you've done a great job there of giving us painting the the bigger picture uh, with regards to uh, why uh, the uh, police issue is, is, is a much broader one in the public administration. But just to finish off and to try and be uh, constructive going forward and to bring it back to the more granular issue of the police. What are some of the steps you would recommend for doing what I can identify as perhaps the three most important issues at the moment with relation to the police? Increasing professionalism in the police force, providing citizens with better and fairer treatment, and ensuring officers of the law cannot act with impunity, something that uh, we, we've seen time and again, but has been refreshed in our memories recently? Well, f- first of all, I wouldn't let the issue go away. I wouldn't hope that the uh, political uh, cycle will move on and the issue will be forgotten. It won't be forgotten. Um, so I would put emphasis on education of new police officers and re-education and constant, you know, I would say professional development uh, of the police. Um, I I don't think the police are particularly, you know, people prone to brutality. There's ordinary human beings just like everybody else. So they need assistance. They need clear protocols of engagement. They need to be um, told what they're allowed and what they're not allowed to do. So there needs to be a review, I think. There needs to be a public review of the police much broader than the one done by the Libsas Committee offered a very short review. I think we need a much bigger strategic review. Uh, and third, I, I think we need to prosecute. I think we need to prosecute. I mean, there is a video evidence of terrible things. These people have to be brought to justice. So in some respects, it's not for the government to do this, it's for the judiciary to do it. Um, but all the evidence needs to go to prosecutors. And I, I really think we need to see trials. Uh, and uh, the government has said they're going to give more powers to the ombudsman. Uh, well, they, they need to give full powers uh, to the ombudsman and, or, or, and the power to bring prosecutions. Uh, I think it's key um, that justice needs to be done and needs to be seen to be done. Uh, there's another final question, uh, issue here, which it occurs to me that in Britain, when you have such big issues, you have a public inquiry. Now, these, yep. these things don't exist in, in Greece. There's not such thing as a public inquiry. But again, I think it would be very beneficial to have an independent person, a former judge, you know, a former, I don't know, senior academic or someone, uh, someone whose record, track record is very strong, uh, to, to actually be responsible for a broad overview and, and, and listening to various people. We, we are, we, our politics has been so confrontational for so long. It's just us and them. I think that's a very big mistake. We need to create areas of deliberation, areas of debate. And I think we need institutions that are not confrontational. I, I mean, Parliament should ideally be that forum. Unfortunately, it isn't yet. 
that forum, but we need to build uh, areas where there can be proper conversations about right and wrong, uh, where facts can be aired and established beyond doubt. Uh, and I think th these are gradual reforms that, that have to happen. They're not going to work a magic, you know, there's, not, there's no magic wand to bring about change immediately, but at least we, we, might, we, we should create a culture of deliberation and accountability. I'm like, I, again, I think time is running out and the government should act quickly on that. Pavlos, uh, thank you very much for sharing your insight here on the Agora with us. Thank you for this invitation. That was Pavlos Eleferiadis, a professor of public law at Oxford University, speaking to Nick about what's wrong with the Greek police and how it could be fixed. You know, we've heard a range of opinions and experiences on today's podcast, but one common view that we take away has been that the general standard of policing in Greece is not acceptable, to say the least. And as Yorgia reminded us, uh, this issue is likely to crop up again very soon unless corrective action is taken. Recent and uh, perhaps not so recent history would suggest that Little will change, but if it doesn't, it certainly won't be because policymakers weren't aware of the problem or lacked suggestions to tackle it. Speaking of history, it's time we were gone. Yes, that's the end of another episode of the Agora, packed with intellectual rigor, as always. <laughs> Is that going to be our tagline now? There's no escape for it <laughs> from it, Phoebe. <laughs> Anyway, do join us for the next episode. It will be the last one before Greece celebrates Easter, as well as the last episode in this, our second series of the Agora. To make sure you don't miss it, do subscribe to the Agora on Acast, Spotify, or Google and Apple Podcasts. You can also find out more about the show and what Macropolis does at www.macropolis.com. GR. See you soon. Bye bye.